house. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast ordering a Waldorf salad at 3 a.m. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my favorite bisexual Victorian poet, Joe Reed. Uh, hello, Christopher. I am, as you know, very British and always no, British. No, sorry. You are not a bisexual Victorian poet. You are studying uh, the Victorian poets who you might be related to. Very all, uh, It's very true, but all I know is that I am always British in all of my roles, and that is how I am known as, as incredibly British. Um... It's very funny to revisit this era of Gwyneth Paltrow's career uh-huh. because this was, you forget, you really do forget now that her public image has become goop and forgetting that she's in Marvel movies and like all the other Gwyneth things that we know, that at this moment in her career, post Oscar, even when like, because we've talked before about how she wins the Oscar and immediately the backlash sets in. Yes. But like, even like, with that sort of aside, the thing about Gwyneth at this point in her career is she always plays British to the point where like she was she hosted Saturday Night Live and that was her monologue gag was she starts speaking in her British accent and pretending that she's British and different people sort of come up and just like, but Gwyneth, you're you're American. I miss home already. So many wonderful memories of England, the smell of sweet meats and scones on St. Crispin's Day. <laughs> Excuse me, Gwyneth, aren't you from New York? Pardon? Well, I read in People magazine that you grew up in New York City and your mom is Blythe Danner and your dad produced St. Elsewhere or something. Well, I simply don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Would you like some tea, love? Uh, hold on, Gwyneth? Yes? Yeah, hi. It's, uh, it's me. It's, it's me, Ben. I'm, I'm sorry? Ben, Ben Affleck. Oh, Ben Affleck, the charming American actor I worked with in Shakespeare in Love. Uh, Gwyneth, why are you speaking in an English accent? 
English people always speak with English accents, love. Oh, you Yanks are so humorous, spelled with an O-U-R. Her whole aura was very, like, horse girl, but instead of a horse, it's British dialects. Like, it, it's just, it's a certain level of weird that, like, you can't quite explain what it is. It's just, like... It, 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 and this movie is like the the pinnacle of like okay Gwyneth you gotta you gotta she keeps like uh leveling up in the like uh kind of buffoonish version of this British dialect like I was gonna say this yeah. feels like a very SNL British dialect in this movie it is so clipped to the nines it is so pruned in her meter and in her inflection and it is and yet at the time we all were like best british accent in the business like that was sort of for her <laughs> reputation right people loved it because it was this was emma sliding doors um was she british in that movie Hush, or was, am I thinking of Cousin no, Beth? I'm thinking not of that Cousin I, Beth. I only remember that movie for the terrifying trailer where she's yes. like having this really traumatic uh, delivery and Jessica Lang is like just sitting in a corner in a rocking chair, like verbally torturing her. Right. So it's mostly Emma, uh, Sliding Doors, Shakespeare in Love, and this. This is sort of the last of them. I guess... But and then like at the same time, she's in a handful of movies where you feel like it's conceivably possible that she could be British, but she's not. Like she's in Great Expectations, but it's an, an American in Great Expectations. She's in um uh like I said, Hush, which is just like when like you could conceive of that as this sort of like British like castle uh thriller or whatever Ripley, right which is like obviously right about Ripley. american people yeah. uh in europe but like it has that air of it probably because it's an anthony Minghella movie and even sylvia where it's just like oh a movie about like uh uh because like craig is british in that right yes maybe not i can't remember see but this is the thing it's one of those things where it's just like oh like She's playing a, like, famous, like, tortured poet or whatever. Like, that all just seems very, if not British, then, like, the Britishest parts of New England and, and that kind of a thing, right? Where it's just, like, it's, like, the, the new in New England is, like, barely visible. It's just, it's it's one of those kind of a thing. Um, but this is definitely, her vibe has never, been, she's always seemed far too standoffish or like maybe like just too standoffish to ever seem like a theater kid like Anne Hathaway does mm. you know what I mean like like it's there's there's always a little bit too sort of removed from that to be like theater kid and yet well, whenever because... I see her do sorry go ahead no go ahead go ahead well I was gonna say whenever I see her do the British accent it's the closest thing I ever get to thinking of her as a theater kid that's fair I almost feel like it's almost like everything Gwyneth does feels like it's kind of like a lark to her. Like, you know, I guess I'll mm. try it. Even like something like Shallow Hal, it's kind of like, I guess I'll try a body right. comedy or, you right. know, or like the anniversary party. I guess I'll play myself. Um <laughs> <laughs> right. But like this is a this era of her career after the Oscar 
we don't really give her enough credit for trying as many different kinds of things as she did in that like mm-hmm. few, like like Ripley was already in the works by the time she won the Oscar. So like we can't like fully put that in that uh era of hers, but like she's incredible in that movie and like that's not the performance anybody talks about when they watch that movie, but she's yeah. like secretly amazing. Yeah, oh I mean, everybody in that movie is. But yeah, yeah like, there's nothing really... bad about that movie whatsoever. It's, it's We've talked about Ripley before and about how Ripley really was a uh, unfortunate timing for everybody involved in that because everybody was in their Oscar backlash at that point except mm-hmm. for Jude Law, and that's why Jude Law was the one who got the Oscar nomination. But, like, when you're in the Oscar backlash portion of Mingella and Matt Damon and Gwyneth Paltrow, like, that's... It's really unfortunate because, I mean, whatever, we've had this exact conversation before. (laughs) Well, and Blanchett wasn't in a backlash uh, stage, but, like, for that performance and what it is in the movie, aside from being a small role, like... Yeah, it's too small uh, of a role The Academy's not cool enough to nominate that performance at this point. Exactly, exactly. But, like, so, but you look at movies like Duets, Say What You Will, is a really interesting movie for Gwyneth Paltrow to take on as Oscar-winning actress Gwyneth Paltrow, right? right? The anniversary party you mentioned. Like, that's a great, you know, small-budget, interesting role in that she's playing some version of herself. Um, Royal Tenenbaums and the sort of... The way she stretches in Royal Tenenbaums, and, like, that is a different performance than anything we've ever seen her give in that movie. I think she's just absolutely you know phenomenal in that you mentioned shallow hell which is a terrible movie and a despicable sort of choice but it's a choice um and then so that sort of leads us up to where we are with possession which feels like a little throwback right a throwback to like 1998 how dare you overlook her performance as dixie normas in gold (laughs) which like i think is actually important to bring up because yeah with all of this stuff that we've said about Gwyneth feels totally true. I do also think that like things she's done like that, like show up as a cameo in a Austin Bowers movie yeah, shows yeah, yeah, yeah. that she like, it's a reminder because this is something I do think people forget about her because she is <laughs> so much is that she doesn't take herself too seriously at all. Right. Right. She can be very fun and she can, and she, she takes a lot of supporting roles. Like, she doesn't have this thing where it needs to be a Gwyneth Paltrow movie for me to do it. Like, she's in a lot of movies that are either, like, you know, something like... Well, we talked about Running With Scissors uh, several months ago. Or, like, she's in Infamous, the non-Capote... Or the other Capote movie mm-hmm. besides Capote. Um, and... She gets the and credit in Iron Man. Right. She does, as as, uh, we were all reminded in my last uh, trivia night. Yes. Um, And then, like, and she's still doing lead stuff, obviously. Uh, You know, Sylvia and Proof and um, that kind of stuff. Country Strong, of course. How can we forget Country Strong? But, like, she has the lack of vanity to just be like, yes, Steven Soderbergh, I will play a corpse in your movie. And, like, (laughs) I will... You know, absolutely do that. And 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 what do we remember from that movie is we remember her horrifying death visage in that film. Like, 
Um, you know, so everybody's sort of all the better for it. This this movie, Possession, is the second movie we've ever done that features a psychic and Gwyneth Paltrow. However, the last time, the psychic was Gwyneth Paltrow with Running With Scissors. Good point. I was wondering where you were going with that, but very good point, yes. Her with um, her uh, Bible flipping. Yeah. <laughs> yes, what a strange movie. Um, but yeah, so we're talking about Possession. Why are we talking about Possession? Because it's the first ever Focus Features movie. Um, and that's sort of in retrospect, because if you watch the movie, it is uh, it is introduced as, it is credited as a USA Films production. So like this was just after the turnover from USA Films to Focus Features, which we talked about last week. Um, it has a lot to do with uh, uh, Barry Diller and, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Diane F- von Furstenberg. And, um, yeah, uh, in 2002, USA Films and, um, why am I now blanking on his name? James Seamus and Ted Hope's uh, Good Machine are combined into focus features. And... Everything that sort of was USA Films now gets turned over to Focus Features. But before we get to this point, let's talk a little bit about the very brief era of USA Films. Because it's a real interesting, like, year and a half. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Well, and we also, last week when we did The Muse, it was October Films, so... Right, yes, we we did... Yes, we talked about October films last week. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen. Um, but yeah, the very brief era of USA films was incredibly successful, particularly you know with the Oscars, where it has Best Picture nominees in two straight years, Traffic for 2000 and Gosford Park for 2001. And even beyond that, it has some really interesting movies. Um the I mean, Lars von Trier's The Idiots is incredibly controversial, but like, it's a noteworthy sort of Lars von Trier movie. Uh, that movie, Joe Gould's Secret, the Stanley Tucci movie, Joe Gould's Secret, that I keep, um, uh, that I keep meaning to see and uh, haven't, and I can't remember. It must have been one of my Independent Spirit Awards viewings or whatever. I was it was watching something, and somebody was like, "Stanley Tucci couldn't be here. He's making a film in New York City." And I was like, <laughs> "Oh, I wonder what that was." And I looked it up, and the timing was it was Joe Gould's Secret. Um, uh, series seven, The Contenders, is a USA Films uh, oh. movie. I think we've talked about that before. We've talked about Brooke Smith. Brooke Smith, Brooke Smith rules in that movie. Freaking rules. She's it's a uh, it's a very much like post. Uh, post-survivor, post-reality TV boom film where uh, it's about a reality TV competition where people like hunt each other for sport. And she is playing this pregnant assassin, essentially. And she's, she rules in that movie. She was like the former victor of like several seasons. And the thing right. about like this fake show is if you win, you have to go on to the next seasons. And, right. Um, who is it? Is it? I hate to butcher her name because she's amazing too. Is it? It's not Mary Elizabeth Burke, but it's Mary Louise Burke. Mary Louise Burke, Mary also Louise incredible Burke. and hilarious in that movie as like the sweet old lady who becomes the most bloodthirsty because you're also you don't apply to be on this show. You're like forced to be on the show. 
Also, you know who plays the college student in that is who? Merritt Weaver. Oh wow! Yeah, like very very early Merritt Weaver. If that's a that's a killer films uh, movie. That's a uh, um, uh, Christine Vachon. Uh, joint. And... I don't know how available it is, but that movie needs like a midnight revival when theaters reopen. People should check it out for sure, for sure. Um, it's a movie that people should talk about when we talk about like the history of reality TV because like we've had reality TV enough now that it's yeah. like uh, it feels intrinsic to all of that. Yeah. Um, another USA Films uh, movie from that era, Session 9. Have you ever seen Session 9? The you Brad keep Anderson telling movie? me to watch this, and I haven't watched it. It's creepy as hell. It's uh, David Caruso and Peter Milan and Josh Lucas. And it's uh, people... It's a asbestos-removing company. It's such a simple premise. An asbestos-removing company goes to remove asbestos from a haunted asylum, like an abandoned uh, psychiatric hospital. And... It's, you know, when they uncover these audio tapes and they sort of get, you know, fall down the rabbit hole of like what had gone on in this uh, in this asylum. It's just very, very simple and good. Um, and then the Coen Brothers movie, The Man Who Wasn't There, which got some kind of Oscar nominations. I know it got, uh, I think, I'm pretty a sure Roger Deakins. nomination. I'm pretty sure that's cinema- Deakins. Yeah, uh, it is Roger Deakins. But like that is a movie... People do, when people talk about Coen Brothers movies, and when people do their inevitable rankings of Coen Brothers movies, which happens whenever there's a new one, um, I'm always most interested to see where The Man Who Wasn't There sort of shakes out in the list. Because it's usually like either upper middle or lower middle, and I feel like I characterize by the list by like whether they put it upper middle or lower middle. <laughs> um, it's a movie that I remember watching initially, and I was just like... Well, that was kind of boring. And then the more I thought of it, I was just like, oh, well, like, the boringness of this is kind of radical, right? Where it's just like they, that Billy Bob Thornton character, like, could not be more unflappable and steady and sort of like, but that sort of becomes the point of his character. And around well, it's him. Tony Shalhoub who got the most, like, critical reactions for that movie, right? Yes. Like, yes. That's kind he got of a bunch of precursor stuff. Yes. Um, but, like, yeah, Shalhoub is the very sort of animated, uh, you know, uh, character in that movie. But, like, Frances McDormand plays Billy Bob Thornton's wife, and she's really fantastic in it. That was part of the Scarlett Johansson um, sort of breakthrough year, because it was this and Ghost World both in the same year. And, yeah, it's a really interesting interesting movie that I would say uh, go revisit it. But just, like, have, you know, have patience with it. And then, obviously, Gosford Park is a huge Oscar success. It's on everybody's IMDb game, as we have discovered uh, through the last few years doing this podcast. Gets Best Picture, Best Director nominations, wins the Golden Globe, I'm pretty sure, for Robert Altman. Yes. And, and as happens every year, when people start surmising whether Best Picture and Best Director were, will split, because that was 2001 Best Picture... We remember it now as like a beautiful mind winning and everybody's sort of like now is just like, oh, it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. Ron Howard was always going to get his Oscar and it was going to. But like at the time. for Polygon. <laughs> yeah. At the time, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring was very, very much considered a major contender. It had the most nominations, right? Yes, it did. It and 13. 
so people there were a lot of people talking about like well will, will it split will it be a beautiful mind best picture maybe peter jackson best director maybe the other way around maybe uh, robert altman will win director and one of these two movies will win best picture because it really felt like a career capper moment for robert altman that he had sort of like he was back on top he was you know this very like typically robert altman giant ensemble you're very very sort of like interested in all these characters as they go about their business and um so that's like two years in a row where usa films is very close to you know the very top of of the Mm -hmm. oscar list right traffic wins best director almost probably almost wins it won every other award it was nominated for besides best picture so you imagine it probably came close and so now USA Films is sort of like riding high atop the like indie film uh, landscape and gets merged with Good Machine and becomes Focus Features. Q again, soothing title card uh, music. <laughs> the Wayback Machine was not uh, my friend this week because I was trying to get like exact timing, exact production histories, and it couldn't happen. Because I will tell you, I watched this on a DVD. So I'm sure, mm-hmm. like we mentioned last week with The Muse, if you rent The Muse on like iTunes right now, you're going right. to get a Focus Features logo. Right. Uh, Possession didn't have... <laughs> the like focus features logo as we know and rely it had a on very it prototypical today. yeah it had a very early first draft it was basically a slide i yes. wanted to flip my desk <laughs> i was pissed um so that probably means the first movie that had our beloved focus features logo was yeah. uh, Francois Ozon's Eight Women, which like I'm it's very going, possible. I'm going to credit Isabelle Huppert with that. Uh, with uh, <laughs> of course that. you are. Yeah, possession was so early on in the focus features thing that the trailer still has the USA Films logo uh, on the trailer. Interesting. So, yeah, so it was very, very early. But it is the first Focus Features movie um, from summer 2002. I remember this being... We talk about um, Entertainment Weekly uh, movie previews. This is obviously not a fall movie preview, but this would have been whatever their like spring-summer movie preview issue was. Mm-hmm. I remember this getting... And maybe I'm fully up a creek on it, but I don't think I am. I think this got like a full page. And... That's sort of how, you know, you sort of got your information as to what was going to be sort of major and what wasn't going to be. And I think the Neil LeBute of it all was a big part of that. And also, obviously, the Gwyneth Paltrow of it all. Mm -hmm. And it just arrived very quietly and, and never really got any louder in 2002. Yeah. um... And... It's like as soon as it released, it was just very quiet. Which, like, people talk about these kind of August August movies as being, like, a wasteland. And maybe less so after, like, Guardians of the Galaxy made a shit ton of money in August. But, like, August counter-programming, there, in terms of Oscar, there are a lot of examples where it has worked. Things like The Help. Um, because, mm. like, these type of movies meant for more adults or like people who are maybe 
interested or like tired of all of the summer bombast like a movie can go down really really well if it's uh programmed well at the time that this movie was released yeah yeah no it's true and like by this point we're only a few years removed from something like the sixth sense getting a best picture nomination from Mm -hmm. august so like obviously these things you know can and do happen but it does you like it takes work you got to put the work into it and the reviews were not in a position like you look at the reviews for this movie and even the positive ones are like oh huh that's that's a cute little thing that neil Levy do you you wouldn't have expected that from you know the in the company of men guy and it was like muted good reviews or else people who were like this didn't work at all like the tones of this were really at war with each other which i do kind of agree with and so like it was like muted positive less muted negative (laughs) reviews so (laughs) even though i think it's rotten tomatoes percentage was like in the 60s or something like that yeah it's like 60s rotten tomatoes 50s metacritic which is exactly what i would have expected after Mm -hmm. i watched the movie yeah exactly exactly and we'll get into later on how it was very easy for focus to sort of like quickly move on to their other movies in 2002 because they Mm -hmm. you know hit the ground running with oscar especially with some uh, yeah like you you can see how this would have had like um uh, a more prestigious release when it opened mm-hmm. and then quickly mm-hmm. got buried by the rest of the things they had that year. Yeah. Uh we'll definitely talk about that for sure after we, you know, get through talking about the movie itself, which it's an interesting movie. I didn't love it and I didn't hate it, which sort of feels sometimes like I'm throwing my hands up and just being like, you decide. Um, (laughs) But I think there are like specific things about it that are interesting in terms of like what kept me from really liking it. How, what was your experience watching this movie? I mean, I, it's, it's less that I don't know where I fell with this movie as, as it is. I hated half of it and I really enjoyed the other half. Did it it fall along, like, Julie and Julia lines? Where, like, I love this plot line. I love this, you know, era plot line. And I hated this plot line. See, I don't hate the Julie stuff in Julie and Julia. Oh, no, 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 no. I I don't mean to say that I don't either. But I think that was the vibe of the reaction to Julie and Julia, right? Where people were like, love the Meryl stuff, hate the Amy Adams stuff. And... Right. Those people are wrong. But, yes, it's (laughs) basically that. The modern day stuff in this movie... I think is actively bad, actively boring. Um, And I like most of the Gwyneth movies we've talked about. It's like, she's actually one of the better things about this not great movie. And I think it's the opposite. I think she's one of the movie's biggest problems. I kind of want to see the version of the movie where the four leads uh, swap roles, um, because I think it might make it for make for a better movie. But like, yeah. The period stuff relies so heavily on uh, Jennifer Ely, so I was all game for of it. Of course. You but are it's also a like that noted slut for Jennifer Ely. Yeah. No, that is true. I feel like the movie takes us away from them too often for it to ever like build up the kind of momentum that I need for yeah. me to become fully wrapped up in it. I Because this movie 
so often reminded me of uh, the French lieutenant's woman um, in its sort of, you know, where, you know, a modern day story that is being commented on by a fictional or, a, you know, in that case, I think French lieutenant's woman, it's a fictional story. Um, in this case, it's a, you know, historical. They're looking into, you know, these poets who were from the Victorian era. But like each one sort of comments on each other. And in that movie, in The French Lieutenant's Woman, the characters are played by the same actors. So it's Streep and Jeremy Irons. In I also both. kind of wanted it to be that. Uh, that's the thing. And also the other thing is that scene at the train station where Jennifer Ely shows up in that phenomenal sort of billowing green thing with the hood. <laughs> I'm like, this is very French Lieutenant's Woman. Um, but yeah, I wonder if it would have been better if Jeremy Northam and Jennifer Ely were the actors in the modern day portions as well. Obviously, I can see why you would want to have a big star like Gwyneth Paltrow. And obviously, like Aaron Eckhart is Neil Butte's security blanket. So, you know, <laughs> I get it from that uh, point of view. I think I agree with you there. I have, I may be a little bit more mixed on both halves of the movie, but we'll, you know, we'll get into it maybe on the other side of the plot description. Which I was going to say, we should get into it because we're starting to like wade into the waters of actually like unpacking this movie. Yeah, so guys, yeah, yeah. once again, we are here to talk about Possession, not the one where Isabella Johnny uh, freaks the fuck out in a train station tunnel. Uh, we are talking about the also one Also not poets. the one where where uh, uh, Sarah Mich- is it Sarah Michelle Geller who's in the other possession? Ooh. There's one from like the 2010s or whatever. Um, who's in that one? Uh, give me. We one are not second. talking about Repossessed, the Leslie Nielsen Linda Blair Exorcist spoof. Yeah, there was a 2009 uh, sort of creepy horror movie called Possession that starred Sarah Michelle Geller and Lee Pace. That was like I'm pretty sure just like never actually released in the united states like it took forever <laughs> for it to come out and we are not talking it ever about did. the sarah mclaughlin song possession yet yet we probably uh, will be <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about neil labute's possession um written by we'll get into it several drafts over a full decade david henry yeah. huang Laura Jones and Labute, based off of A.S. Byatt's novel, starring Aaron Eckhart, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jeremy Northam, Jennifer Ely, we'll get into it, and Lena Headey. The movie had a limited opening opening August 16th, 2002, before opening wide August 30th of that year. Joe. Yes. If we haven't confused our listeners enough already <laughs> with what this movie is about, would you like to give us a 60-second plot description? Yeah. Yes. All right. Let's get into it. Your 60-second plot description for Possession starts now. All right. Aaron Eckhart plays an American poetry scholar with a butt chin working in London who comes across a heretofore undiscovered letters by a famous Victorian playwright named Randolph Henry Ashe. The letters suggest that Ashe may have had an affair outside his marriage with another poet, bisexual legend Christabel Lamott. Eckhart steals the letters from the London Library, wanting to drop this scholarly bombshell, but to confirm it, he seeks out Gwyneth Paltrow, who is a poetry scholar herself, who is descended from Lamott. They don't get along at first, of course, but then they dig deeper into the Ashe-Lamott romance and they become closer, 
Of course. Uh, They discover further documents as we in the audience watch Ash, played by Jeremy Northam, and Christabel, played by Jennifer Ely, fall in love and have a clandestine affair and kind of like ruin her lesbian relationship with Lena Headey. And then they get torn apart by secrecy, of course. Aaron Eckhart and uh, Paltrow are able to outfox their scholarly rivals in getting the documents that prove that Ash and Christabel had a secret daughter. And Gwyneth is actually descended from the daughter, and so she's the rightful heir to all these letters anyway. And so she and Eckhart make out in their cozy-looking sweaters, having just won the literary nerd lottery and that's end. time hey uh first off thank you for bringing up the sweaters this very quickly um mm. like i've made fun of other movies for this way but it's very true for this this movie could have very quickly had like an ll bean logo show up at any minute i was happy for it i will say that era of 2002 sweater that aaron eckhart's wearing where very the much. sleeves they're very like they're un the sleeves are not cuffed and they are made to fall like right around the like second knuckle of the thumb. Like one of those sweaters <laughs> are a real mood for me. Like an absolute like if I was never ma- able to really make those look good, but I was always into any guy who was able to make those look good. And then Gwyneth, of course, her look when she's not wearing, by the way, at one point, a short-sleeved turtleneck sweater, legend. Um, but it's also those sort of turtleneck sweaters with the big sort of um, uh, donutty uh, uh, bulkiness at, at the the turtleneck collar part. It's just, it's very, very era appropriate for all of it and very cozy looking um, in general. So I was very happy about that. Yeah. Um, not quite a candle movie, though. No, not quite a candle movie. So here's the thing with the Eckhart Paltrow romance, beyond it being very predictable, where they meet and they're like, they're oil and water, and she's sort of, you know, buttoned up scholar, and he's like, rock and roll American, like, eh, I didn't even do the research. I'm going to make a little joke about lesbians. Like, nah, I'm going to nah. steal this from a museum. Right. <laughs> like, you want to have, like, the, the guitar lick happening as he's just, like, he's the rebel American. He's not American in the book, uh, I believe, which is interesting, an interesting sort of change that this makes. Um, and as they sort of, like, they research and... They're sort of placed in these things where they're both reading the letter at the same time. So they're like physically close. And then they go to a little inn somewhere where they're like looking for something else. And they have to share a bed in a room because it's the only one available. And it's just like, y'all, we have seen this. There is a point. This is interesting. There's a point that scene where they're both in the bed together. And you can tell like they're about to start kissing. And he like is like, why do you always wear your hair like that? Because she always wears her hair in this like tight Pulled scholarly bun. bun. Yeah. And I literally wrote down in my notes, I'm like, oh no, is he gonna literally have her let her hair down? And it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't happen in the book, but if you look at the trailer, there are scenes where her hair is down and they start making out. And I'm like, oh, they actually did film that scene. And somebody at some point was must have been just like, this is too cliched like this is one step too far we cannot i do think this. that's what like the poster is like the international posters for this movie are way better than the u.s one which is like floating heads in a city and then smaller yeah. heads making out and it's like no uh eckhart and paltrow are the ones making out with the big heads on the international poster which definitely sells you on the wrong movie right but 
I thank God for the little heads or we wouldn't have gotten the idea for the big heads. So God uh, for the little heads. Um, yeah. Where, where did you, I, you, you did not enjoy their, their storyline at all. Tell, talk no, to me for that. all of the reasons that she said, it's very boring. I don't think that they are, uh, interesting fits both together yeah. and in their role. It does feel very by the numbers, not just the way it's plotted, but also in the performance. Um, they don't really have the right chemistry for it. And part of the right. reason why I say I would rather see either the same people in both roles, because A, it will help, you know, I don't think this movie does a really good job at like charting these two romances as right. like being right. parallel in a way. It's right. like they're just two different timelines. And like, I think if you had the same actors, that would help. But also if you flip the casts, I thought Jennifer Ely and Jeremy Northam had great chemistry. I thought like there was actual palpable sexual tension in what they, they were doing. They have a good sex scene in that movie. They have yeah. a really good sex scene. You see some side butt from Jeremy Northam and <laughs> Jennifer Ely is in one of those giant linen uh, like sleeping gowns. It, it's yes. wonderful. It's yeah. Um, yeah. But like their plot line is way more plotty than the other one. So I think... You know, if you had, like, heat and chemistry in the modern day uh, yeah. couple, like, you already have this interesting movie going on in the other timeline, right? Where it's, right. like, it's still, you know, it's doing its own narrative thing that, like, even if you have more boring actors, it'll still work, right? Yeah. Well, and then you can do the thing that you almost want the movie to do, where you want the modern day couple to be living their romance through this victorian era couple Mm -hmm. and it's not doesn't quite get there the other thing i think is an issue is because i don't think the victorian era plot line is interesting enough either that is my other problem with this is that like i don't think it maintains a momentum we cut away from them for too long there are these like jumps in time where we sort of revisit them at a later stage and you're just like okay well what was going on all of this time all of a sudden you know she had a kid maybe and he's mad at her and then they reconvene at the seance and yada 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 um but i think there are times in the modern day plot line where it feels like a richard curtis movie is about to break out and i deeply want that to happen because i feel like that'll at least be fun mm-hmm. and sort of like the, all this stuff with the rival the rival art or uh, poetry scholars where it's like the the guy who seems like he was at the beginning of the movie, it seems like he's Gwyneth Paltrow's boyfriend, but he's not. He's just sort of with her at a, a auction. And he's <laughs> he's Aaron Eckhart's sort of professional rival. And he sort of defects to this. Couldn't have been a more bland actor. No. Oh, my God. As he has. Like, I know. shockingly bland. Um, And he sort of defects to this other uh, scholar who is also looking to, at some point, they, like, catch on to the fact that there are these secret letters that are being uncovered so now they are trying to like rob graves and look for it and like it at times feels like the tone is starting to get like plinky silly and i'm like that's sort of what i want but you have to like go there and you have to like sell it and otherwise it just seems like tonally off kilter and that's what it felt like to me and i wanted it to be like let tom hollander who is in this movie for like one scene and i'm like bring Tom Hollander around and let him be silly too. Like we want that. Like, and at the very least, then I would have enjoyed myself watching that plot line. 
But I also feel like at the same time, the Victorian era plot line could have used a little more, like if that's going to be like your heavy sort of panting romance, I needed that to be like throw more melodrama into that then if they're if we're talking if it's meant to be a contrast really contrast both of those things and it didn't do that to a certain point and there's like you know there's other levels of melodrama to it to like uh you know a secret child that is sent away and uh this kind of sexless marriage um I don't know. Like I, I thought like it wouldn't the have sexless been enough for wife, its own movie, but yeah, the sexless wife. I did, I did not think sort of popped as a character, which was too bad. I was into the idea of like Lena Headey playing like the she's all that version of Cersei Lannister, where it's like the first <laughs> act where it's just like she's got glasses. Like what's exactly, going on with her? And it, then that is how we distinguish lesbians in cinema, especially during the aughts is they have glasses. They have glasses. Exactly. Um, and dark hair. And uh, yeah. Um, I wanted more of that. Of course, obviously, as I said uh, in my plot description, uh, Christabel is a bisexual legend and I wanted much more of that. And instead, like very early on, we get one scene where they're like together. And then the next scene, she's just like, I can't believe you hid those letters from me. Now I'm going to go be with Jeremy Northam. And then we find out at the end that like, like all lesbians of, uh, of yore in, uh, in England, Lena Headey walks into the sea, walks into the river and uh, drowns herself Virginia Woolf style. I and was going to say, not the most famous um, certainly movie of not. 2002 where a lesbian walks into a body of water. Did die. not realize that that was a trend that year. Um, what other 2002 movie could have like completed that uh, entirely? What could have like Spider-Man? Like maybe like obviously we need Mary Jane to like survive at the end, but like maybe James Franco's character because he's sad his dad dies, like walks into the Hudson with rocks in his pockets or something. I like mean, that. why not the two towers? Um, I'm sure uh, is Galadriel a lesbian? Probably. I mean, let's just say it. All those elves are bisexual. All those elves are bisexual, I've decided. I knew very early on that Orlando Bloom in that movie was bisexual because he had to be um, for, for, you know, for me to be happy. And yeah, yeah, of course Galadriel's a bisexual. Absolutely. That is canon as far as I'm concerned, and nobody will tell me different. J.R.R. Tolkien can, you know have all his religious hangups that he wants. Um, you know, it could have happened in Frida, but like that never happened in real life. Like you, you want some authenticity to uh, truth and history. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. L- listeners, uh, tweet at us what the best third movie for someone to walk into a river from 2002 would have been. And uh, we'll be interested to hear from you. Yeah, um... I felt bad that that's all that that sort of storyline became, you know, came to. Um, I don't know. I was just weirdly dissatisfied with that. Even though, as you say, Jennifer Ely rules and is great in this movie. So good. I mean, okay, so let's talk about Jennifer Ely. This is our first Jennifer Ely movie. There are other ones we can and probably will do. But, like, talk about a performer who is really not ever been given their due she never really leads movies she's always kind of a supporting player and she is always perfect she's always exactly what the movie needs to be and like a lot of those roles are still very very different i probably would have had her on my ballot for contagion um 
even something like Vox Lux, she <laughs> gets exactly yeah. what the energy is supposed to be and the kind mm-hmm. of absurdity and like blandness is supposed to be. Um, She's able to play. She's so good in Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty is a movie that um, doesn't seem like it feels like it needs to have, or like from the outside, you wouldn't think that it would need to have an emotional beat, like an emotional sort of a core to it, mm-hmm. because it's you know it's a essentially a procedural about hunting down Osama bin Laden, right? But, like, Jennifer Ely provides the emotional core for this movie, which you end up, it turns out you do need, because Jessica Chastain's character becomes such a goddamn psycho by the end of that movie that you need to have a justification for it. And Jennifer Ely really sells being the justification for that Mm -hmm. and um, does a very good job with that. She's, her career's so, like, you look at all of these uh, roles that she's in, Including shit that I, like, had no idea that she's in, like, the RoboCop remake. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Or, uh, um, I've never seen A Quiet Passion, so I didn't realize she's in, uh... She's amazing in A Quiet Passion. I mean, Is she her sister? Yes. Everybody rightly talks about, um, Cynthia Nixon as, uh, Emily Dickinson when we talk about that movie. But, like... Jennifer Ely this is the other thing about Jennifer Ely she's an incredible like scene partner in building chemistry with the people that she is on screen with and Mm -hmm. like their relationship is just so good um in that movie um in terms of just like the layers that like Jennifer Ely brings to like complicated and play off of this like very large performance that Cynthia Cynthia Nixon is giving um and like even that's a movie I mean, like, that movie had a really small, muted response, but, like, even in the discussion of, like, Cynthia Nixon, not a lot of people made space for Jennifer Ely either. We talk a lot about how we want to do Wild at some point, which we really should. She's in that. She plays Oscar Wilde's wife in Wild. Mm -hmm. She's also in uh, this movie that I saw a long time ago that I keep wanting to revisit, this British gay rom-com called Bedrooms and Hallways, which stars Kevin McKidd, who people probably know from Grey's Anatomy, who plays uh, Owen Hunt on Grey's Anatomy. And even though Owen is terrible as a character, uh, and we all agree, Kevin McKidd's very good. And James Purefoy. So it's like Kevin McKidd Mm -hmm. and James Purefoy are like, you know, really, really sexy together. And um, But Jennifer Ely is in this. Like, the cast of this movie is fantastic. Um, Tom Hollander is also in that movie. Hugo Weaving's in that movie. Simon Callow's in that movie. Harriet Walter's in that movie. It's a really, really well-cast film. I need so, to like, watch this movie. Um, of course, like, out. the biggest launch that Jennifer Ely has had, and probably the one that she's most remembered for, mm-hmm. is playing Elizabeth Bennett in the BBC Pride and Prejudice in the mid-90s that, like... Yes. Uh, it was so beloved that when the Joe Wright one came out, which is still pretty straightforward of Pride and Prejudice, you know, especially in terms of what Joe Wright has done with his career. And like that movie comes out and it's like, how dare they from the like fans mm-hmm. of the BBC version. Um, and I mean, it's kind, it's kind of a bummer that Colin Firth, who plays uh, obviously Mr. Darcy and that, Pride and Prejudice. His career went where it did. He's, you know, won an Oscar by now. He's, you know, that that we didn't see a parallel path 
for Jennifer Ely mm-hmm. to quite that degree, which is like it's a bummer. And I mean, like it's a that... bummer because she hasn't gotten like the type of uh, you know, trophies and like spotlight right. recognition as she has. But that's what he I has. Mean. But at the same time, like she works constantly, like to oh, the point absolutely. where she's doing absolutely. six movies a year. Um, yeah, she's gonna be in the HBO. Is she right? Is she gonna be in the HBO Oslo, or am I making that up? Uh... I think I'm making that up. She was in the stage version of Oslo. Um, Interesting. I guess she's not. That's a bummer. I always, I just assumed that they would have been bringing her along. She's in that movie Saint Maud that I haven't seen yet that I heard is very good. The, she's uh, the reason I went and saw that movie. at that TIFF. Um, she's also in the uh, the Sundance movie from this year that we both hated, John and the Hole, where she, it's Ugh. you know completely wastes her talents. Um, but like she's Dakota Johnson's mother in the Fifty Shades movies. Like it's a lot of really different kind of stuff for Jennifer Ely. But yeah, yeah like she's, she's had a really like uh, this kind of hard to pin career where like she can kind of be thrown almost anything it seems and come out on top and be one of like your favorite quietly one of your favorite things about the movie i suppose like and this didn't even get that far um i suppose like the closest run she had with awards in terms of films is that movie that we also have talked about doing because it's just like this weird outlier in 1999 or 2000 um that movie sunshine with rachel vice and the it's fun uh, movie sunshine yeah golden globe uh, multiple golden globe nominations well the thing about that and i think i would have to go back and like really research this but they tried to campaign her and her mother rosemary harris together as one performance because they shared a golden satellite nomination for that yeah (laughs) not the satellites i know Um, i know but to my memory they were they tried to pull off this thing where they were campaigning them together as like one performance uh and obviously like rules and such it didn't uh yeah that was not allowed to happen her awards tab is very interesting that's her only satellites nomination her only screen actors guild nominee or no it's a win with the cast of the king's speech she got she shared in that sag ensemble win for the king's speech she got it forget she's in she got a couple uh, runners-up citations for supporting actress for St. Maud this past year, which is really interesting. Um, British Independent Film Award nomination and a London Critics Circle Film Awards nomination, both for St. Maud. Um, she was nominated for a BAFTA for supporting actress for Wild. We really do have to do Wild. Um, and uh, the Village Voice Film Poll twice had her on their top 10 list for supporting actress for Contagion and Zero Dark Thirty back-to-back years. So that's cool that, like, someone at least was out there recognizing how great she was in both of those movies back-to-back. At this point, I do wish we had done Contagion before the pandemic had hit. I know, we can't do it now. Because now we will never do Contagion. I know, (laughs) It will just never happen. Um, I know. Because, yeah, like, that movie got screwed at the time, and I think she specifically um, got screwed. She was also nominated for a Genie Award for Sunshine as a lead actress. Just her, not her mother, uh, Rosemary Harris. 
Rosemary Harris, by the way, in 2002 was having a hell of a year because this was uh, the sp- first Spider-Man movie where she I had played, pulled Rosemary Harris uh, to Man. do um, IMD- IMDb game, but it's three. It, God, throw some respect on Rosemary Harris as IMDb. It's just the three Spider-Man movies and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which oh, is a God. good movie. But like, she's had a oh. more interesting career than playing Aunt May. Oh, no, I know. I'm just saying this was a big year for her. Um, one last Jennifer Ely role that I that I neglected to mention, and I should. She's the wife in uh, Little Men, the uh, oh, Iris Axe movie, Little Men. Iris Axe is Little Men, incredible movie. We will find more ways to bring up that movie on this podcast, but rightly so. We will because, find ways uh, to bring up Iris Axe wherever we can. Love his yeah. movies. Um, yep. Guys, check out Little Men when you can. The I guess my button on the Jennifer Ely thing, and I tweeted this last night, Um Truly one of the best uh, days of the early pandemic was when Jennifer Ely on Instagram, she since deleted her Instagram, um, probably because people were a lot. Um, When she started reading Pride and Prejudice, like post going live and reading the book. um, I don't remember this. Oh, it was like, I remember the time that it happened and like uh, me and a few errant homosexuals were freaking out. Um, online and like sending it to each other immediately um, <laughs> and it was just like so pure and so comforting in like the early scary times uh, that it was uh-huh. like just one of those days that I during the pandemic where I just like cried because something was nice oh you know? <laughs> those moments were hard to come by but yeah that was, Jennifer uh... Ely come back to Instagram read anything else you want to us so talk a little bit about the sort of development journey of this movie because this is based on a novel that was a thing it was published in 1990 and it did they had been trying to make this into a movie basically since then and it was a long winding road to 2002 for this you watch this movie and it to me makes sense that it passed over several different hands in getting adapted because it doesn't ever feel like it has you know one clear vision of what it should be and it feels like it's picked up elements like as it sort of moved along absolutely yeah and um well it started with david henry huang who like instantly you know that's gonna give the movie an air of prestige because in the late 80s he was pulitzer finalist won best play for um m butterfly and he's just like stayed right. incredibly the... successful and uh lauded uh, yeah. genius uh writer for the stage i saw um, golden child off broadway a few years ago and i thought uh, it was very jealous good. very yeah. jealous yeah. um meanwhile um uh, like the directors that were getting attached were people like Sidney Pollock. I could easily imagine him being attached when Huang was attached. Jillian um, mm-hmm. uh, Armstrong, who like listeners will probably most know from the Winona writer Little Women. Um, yes. She comes on to it. I imagine that's how Laura Jones uh, that's, got attached. That's what I was it. thinking as well, because Laura Jones did the screenplay for Oscar and Lucinda, mm-hmm. which was the Jillian Armstrong directed movie that starred Ray Fiennes and Kate Blanchett the year before Kate Blanchett broke through with uh, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. which obviously will always be cosmically tied to Gwyneth Paltrow because uh, that was the, she was sort of Gwyneth's big Oscar rival that year for the mm-hmm. Shakespeare and Love Oscar. Yeah. Uh, and eventually it makes its way to Neil LeBute, who I, I I couldn't really find anything. I read an interview where like when he took a pass at the script, he uh, talked about how uh, he had found some 
like version or notes uh, by the book's original author on like what a movie should be like of this book. And then he really uh-huh. took a lot of those notes to heart. And you can kind of really see how that makes for some disjointed things. But I couldn't find anything on why this for Labute? Because this is still at yeah. the like incredibly caustic point of like right. the things that Neil Labute was writing, and we've talked about that in our episode on Nurse Betty. Um, but like this I... movie comes out in the same year that the play of A Shape of Things premieres, and I can't right. even watching the movie. I kind of can't reconcile it. I mean, it could be as simple as he was just looking to do something very different than what he had been doing to try and, you know, sort of shake up his professional reputation. Obviously, mm-hmm. you imagine that when Labute came on to the film, that's when the uh, the Roland character becomes American because, you know, he wants to cast Aaron Eckhart, who right. had starred in his previous films. Has but Aaron yeah, Eckhart ever done a dialect? Oh gosh, I don't think he I has. Don't know. Let me see. Now I'm going to take a quick perusal through because he had just been in um, Aaron Brockovich. He had been it. He so he had been in the uh, Labute movies, in the Company of Men, which was his big breakthrough, Independent Spirit Award, uh, all that sort of stuff. Your Friends and Neighbors and Nurse Betty in 2000. But like most people at that point knew him for Aaron Brockovich. Uh, the other thing about Aaron Eckhart in this movie is it's so close to when he was in the core that <laughs> I kept sort of picturing when he would show up on screen, I'm like, but when is he going to tell Gwyneth Paltrow about the mission to drill to the center of the earth? Because like, they got to get to that. It's got to happen. Um, oh, what else? What else? I'm going through. Thank you for smoking was a big one for him um he's That's in black after dahlia uh, yes uh obviously the dark knight was like uh pretty huge for him i remember there being like some serious like people were saying like no aaron eckhart should be a supporting actor contender for the, the dark knight um that year like there was uh a lot of sort of heat behind him i'm kind of surprised he's never gotten an oscar nomination ever. right um Maybe when he's the monster in I, Frankenstein, he has a uh, an accent. I don't know. I doubt it, because I've seen that dog shit movie. <laughs> he's the president of the United States in the uh, in the Has Fallen movies, both uh, Olympus and London uh, fell uh, uh, in those movies, and he was the president of the United States in those. Um, isn't Morgan Freeman also the... Is he maybe just the president in the third one? You are asking the wrong person. I will never I don't see know, those man. movies. I don't know, man. Yeah, Aaron Eckhart seems like decidedly American. But yeah, he's been in enough things and acclaimed in enough things that it is somewhat surprising to me that he's never pulled uh, an Oscar nomination. Whether it was in something like Rabbit Hole or... Um, Obviously, he was the only contender for best freeze frame in a movie for Sully, but that they voted they at the very last second they voted that that should not be a category that year, even though it God, really Sully. would have helped burnish the ratings for that. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. He's gonna be in that. Uh, 
the that Showtime series, The First Lady, where uh, Viola Davis plays Michelle Obama and Michelle Pfeiffer plays Betty Ford. And excited for this. He's playing Gerald Ford in that. Yeah, the cast in that movie is insane. Uh, Viola Davis, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Dakota Fanning, our, uh, our good friend Dakota Fanning, Judy Greer, the great Judy Greer. Um, should be interesting. For the longest time, my friend Mark and I had this idea to write a uh, pilot script for a series where all of the... Uh, first ladies fictional first ladies of the united states um were in in the years since they were first lady were recruited into a, a cia-like organization where they performed spy missions and we were like <laughs> it would be like the golden girls meets alias and uh, we thought it was a very good idea it's not too late it's not too late Somebody i would watch it. that show anyway um yeah eckhart in this movie when you mentioned that you think Paltrow's performance is a problem in this movie, I don't disagree because it shouldn't. I shouldn't watch scenes with her and Aaron Eckhart where I think he's the better of the two of them. And I do feel like that in a few of these scenes in this movie. I don't necessarily feel that because I do like Aaron Eckhart. And I mean, I love Gwyneth too, but it's just like, it. it feels like, I mean, we spent maybe too much time making fun of her dialect, but like, it feels like that's the entire <laughs> characterization. Like, yes. I don't, I, and like, it's, it, I feel bad even saying that because I don't think that her, she clearly has the weakest character of the four leads. Yeah. Um, and like, what the hell else is she going to do with this? Like, well, it's just. We get to the point in the movie where they have to have, because like, the script books said they do they have to have conflict in at the like you know hour maybe like you know hour and five minute mark of this movie to uh to sort of send us into our third act and the conflict they get into this argument and he sort of says like oh and now is the now now's the part where you you know get frosty and put up your walls isn't this what you always do with men and yada 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 and i'm like is that who she is like is that that is that her character because like at this point i guess we had been told that by this fergus guy this you know the toby stevens character who was like be careful they call her a bowl buster like these kind of things and it's like and I'm like, I guess that's what, like, on paper we're supposed to know about this yeah. character. Maud, and then there's Maud. Um, I mean, maybe but, at some level she's miscast then, and that's part of the problem, because, like... Maybe, but I just don't think, like, they do enough work with the scenes with her character specifically to make that, like, she just seems like she's being professional. She doesn't seem like yes. she's being, like, unduly frosty or oh, anything yeah. like that. Oh, yeah, imagine a movie written and directed by Neil LeBute <laughs> where a woman is merely professional and all of the men interpret that as cold. Like, imagine. Um, yeah. Uh, no, my... Uh, I, I mean, I guess she's also not playing cold, but that's why I say maybe yeah. she's also miscast. Because, maybe. like, when I think of Gwyneth as a screen presence and as an actress, like, cold is, like, one of the last things I would call her. Like, if anything, she's, like, has this kind of uh, inner warmth that sometimes, like, in things like Bounce, she's maybe suppressing, you know? And, like, cold, well, I think of, like, 
unemotional or like unexpressive and that is but she, not she, what Gwyneth is. She played those notes really well in the Royal Tenenbaums though, where she played like reserved to the point of comedy in that movie and like that works really well for her. So like I think she could do it. Um you know, you're not wrong about that, you know, being sort of, you know, a thing that she doesn't really do in most of her other roles, but I think she's, you know, she's definitely got that in her, but yeah, it just doesn't work. And I'm, 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 you know, at a loss a little bit to fully explain why it doesn't work, but it really, really doesn't work. Yeah. <sighs> I don't, I don't know. know. I think like, again, like I was rather compelled by the other story, even if it was just like, you know, not fluff, but even if it was just like I enjoy watching um, solid melodrama and like sure. I thought Jennifer Ely kind of fucking ruled, um, but she always does. But like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's a very, very uh, mixed movie. <laughs> I think I enjoyed Gabriel Yared's score to the film. Yeah, I thought that was pretty yeah. good. I it do made love me uh, wish score. for the Mingella version of this movie. Mingella would have been a great person to do this movie, and you know, reuniting with Gwyneth Paltrow would have Can been you very even cool. Grapple with how hot this movie would have been if it was a Mingella movie. Oh, what was he doing in two thousand two? Pause, please. Uh, he Mingella. was prepping Cold Mountain. Oh God, you're totally right. Oh no, see, let Neil the Butte make Cold Mountain, and ooh, ooh, and... ooh. <laughs> Can you ew. imagine? Can you imagine Neil Butte's Cold Mountain? I don't even Most know. I don't even know what I would make I have a, ever heard you say make on this a podcast. joke about. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. What would Zellweger's character have been like in Neil Butte's Cold Mountain? She would have been played by a man. Um, <laughs> is what that would have been. Boy, that's an alternate history. Neil Butte makes Cold Mountain, turns Ruby Thieves' character into a man, and Shori Agadashlu is an Oscar winner now today because of that. That's true. So. And Tim Robbins isn't, so also... Uh, also also great. Yeah. Um, wow, all these problems could have been solved if you just get Anthony Miguel onto this project. And listen, Sidney Pollock was attached, so, like, that pipeline probably existed because Sidney Pollock and Miguel obviously had a very, you know, uh, long and fruitful professional uh, uh, relationship, so it could have happened. It's true. It also says that uh, Ray Fiennes at one point was approached for the role that Jeremy Northam ends up playing, which feels very correct. (laughs) Like that is a, that is a Ray Fiennes English patient era movie uh, role for sure. sure. Before he became known for playing, um, you know, creeps and villains, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, in his later career. um, I was just on uh, Murtado Alfaddle's podcast, uh, for uh, Sundays with Kate, which is a Kate Blanchett broadcast, and we were talking about an ideal husband where ah. Jeremy Northam is like the other guy. It's Rupert Everett and then one right. other dude, and it's Jeremy Northam. And we talked all about like, where the hell is Jeremy Northam? Like, Jeremy Northam really didn't have like. You what did you think of be... that movie? I really had a good time with it. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got to give it another shot. I started watching it uh, earlier in the pandemic. And I was so off-put by Julianne Moore's performance, which is, oh, like, not a great. thing I ever say. I was not on on board with it. I got to oh, maybe try it again. I think she's great, especially okay. in relation to what everybody else is doing, because I think, like, 
everybody it's a movie that they really could have pushed um for broader characterizations or like she could have been more like outwardly villainous but like every horrible thing out of her mouth is said with this smile and like she doesn't lean in too hard to everything in a way I'll give that it I another found shot really delicious yeah. and funny i was listen lord knows my emotional state during the pandemic was all over the place so who knows <laughs> what i was feeling on that day it's a good um, movie all right we yeah, should I, uh, talk about the rest of 2002 for Focus Features because it's the first official Focus yeah, Features man. year. This is the first Focus Features movie. And like you could see how, uh, even if we don't think Gwyneth is very good in this movie, like you know, she was kind of what the movie was hinged on in terms of like right. promoting the movie. So like they could have like tried to do a best actress thing. But like I remember the reviews for this, like having Jennifer Ely be the standout. And, like, they could have pushed for supporting actress. But Focus actually had a lot going on in their first year. They have, um, like I mentioned, Eight Women, which was the French uh, submission for mm. uh, what was then foreign language film. Uh, did not get nominated. You can see why. It's a musical. It's this, like, frothy comedy. I think it's great. It is so much fun. Have you seen that movie? Uh, wait, sorry, which movie? Eight Women. I've never seen Eight Women. No, you would have a ball with that I should. movie. No, sorry. Um, I was just distracted because I was doing the math. And uh, uh, a full three days after Possession opened wide in the United States was the Venice Film Festival premiere of Far From Heaven. So yes. really, like, Possession, like, the clock ran out on that one in a full 72 hours. <laughs> where it was just like, and no. And well, now we've found our, our No, horse. because you do have these two big like festival plays that become their big Oscar movies, which are far from heaven uh, goes to Venice. I believe Julianne Moore won best actress there. Am I, crazy? I think, I think that is right. Yes. I and will, Latchman uh... got a special prize for cinematography as he should. Yeah. Um, and then you also have Roman Polanski's the pianist, which uh, won the Palm door um, and is like mm -hmm. the end of one of the end of the year movies in O2, which like, that whole Christmas window is blocked full of the best picture lineup and other Oscar plays yeah. too, because like Chicago comes out, then the hours comes out, then Lord of the Rings comes out then. Right. Um, yeah. Weirdly far from heaven is like the early movie that year. And it ran out of gas because it opened in exactly. early November in the United States. And at the time, Everybody was like, well, here is one of your big Best Picture contenders. Obviously, Julianne Moore is a slam dunk to win Best Actress. And also, it's going to get nominations for Dennis Quaid and probably Patricia Clarkson. And it'll get Picture and Director and all of this. And, like, early November was way too early that year because all the heavy hitters opened in late December. And mm -hmm. it just ran out of gas in a way that was like... A real bummer. Like, for as much as... I mean, obviously, you know how much I love The Hours. And you know how much I love Nicole Kidman in that. But, like, Julianne Moore gave the best performance by an actress that year. And it's... Things worked out fine for Julianne. And we talked about on uh, on uh, Screen Drafts, which will maybe be out by now. Maybe not. Uh, it should be out, yeah. Um, how much we love Julianne Moore and Still Alice and, uh, and think very highly of that Oscar win. But, like... It was a bummer because this was like the year of Julianne Moore, uh, Repressed Housewife, because it was this and the hours <laughs> in the same year. And then that Golden Globes happened 
and Kidman beats out Julianne Moore for the Globe. And in, in that instant, I remember thinking, oh, no, yeah, it's going to be this. Like, oh, no, right. Mm-hmm. No, Nicole's winning that Oscar. Like, it's this. It's over for Julianne. And, um, but it's funny to think of what a front runner that was, Far From Heaven, in, like, you know, in the fall before December sort of descended upon everybody. Maybe I am since hardened by the Academy's relationship to Todd Haynes movies, but I also, I mean, I also think maybe we were probably naive at that time too, because like, I mean, his well, movies are not straightforward movies, even far from heaven. Like you do have to have a certain level of understanding that it is a riff on these like movies from that era. It's a riff on Douglas Sirk where it's like, it's using the language of those movies and the limitations of those movies and what they could express or say outright at the time and like doing it in this kind of knowing pointed way that like the type of uh, uh, audiences or Academy voters that really just want everything underlined and spelled out for them are just not going to get that movie or his movies. You know, it's... You're not wrong. And I think hindsight definitely plays into it where you look at something like you know carol which again as i always have to remind people was still a six-time academy award nominated movie they did not hate carol but there was sort of a far from heaven it had i think five but i think with both of them there's a ceiling there was a ceiling on and i think if 2002 is a top 10 movie year far from heaven is a nominee but um there was a ceiling we should play that game, by the way, if we haven't already, is what the Ooh. top 10 of 2002 would have been. Um, I was thinking about this. But, uh, and what, just what, but like the thing with the, you know, in retrospect, yes, we've seen, you know, the response that Todd Haynes movies have gotten from the Academy since then. But I do think because Far From Heaven was so, um, not, it wasn't reverent to the Cirque movies, but it, but stylistically it was. Like, uh, you're right in the fact that like it does things and it and it you know offers critiques and it doesn't sort of give you the narrative the way that you want. But like because it was such a stylistic ode to those movies, I don't think it was um, out of the question for us to assume that Hollywood would, you know, that Oscar voters would have been very into the Hollywoodiness of it all. And that's sort of what I remember thinking at the time. Well, it's also worth noting, too, that, like, the Academy didn't go for Douglas Sirk at the no, time. you're either. right. This is a you're genre right. that, like, it takes a lot for yeah. the Academy to get behind. These, like, type of uh, right. uh, melodramas and, like, because especially yeah. at the time, like, those were seen as, like, fluff movies, the Cirque movies. And right. I think they're... Right. I, I can't pull it off the top of my head, but I do think there was a movie or two that was embraced by the Academy in terms of Douglas Sirk's filmography. But, um, yeah, like, no. people also forget when talking about that movie that, you know, it's a genre that they kind of look down their nose at. But Hollywood does tend to with with enough you know passage of time they tend to adopt things that they didn't adopt at the time like if you look at an oscar montage they'll include movies from like 20 30 40 years ago that like they didn't touch back then but because time has sort of made those movies 
canonical. Mm-hmm. Like you look at like I remember that wonderful montage at the 90th Oscars, uh, the uh, the Shape of Water Oscars, where they did like 90 years of Best Picture, to the one where it breaks into the Love Actually score and for the last like oh 30 God. seconds of it, Talk and about it, like weeping. Oh well, and it breaks into that after right after uh, uh, the voiceover from uh, Shawshank Redemption, where it says uh, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of thing things and no good thing ever dies and as it says no good thing ever dies they show anton yelchin and star trek and i just like start bawling um but <laughs> phenomenal because he had just died and it was just it was so sad um uh great montage but anyway so many things that are in that montage i remember people like bitched about it at the time they're like well the oscars never nominated x y and z and it's like no but they have come to acknowledge the fact that like the fullness of you know cinematic history you know encompasses you know all of these things that maybe they didn't at the time and so i do feel like sometimes oscar voters won't remember that necessarily oh no we didn't like best douglas sirk back then because it wasn't you know we it was whoever was voting back then and and now they're like oh yes yes these uh, these movies that we obviously loved at the time because they're uh, they're classics mm-hmm. i don't know all right 2002 Oscars, the 75th Academy Awards. Um, if this was so, the well, let's remind the listeners what the what the uh, what the Best Picture nominees actually were because there were only uh, the five. Sh- Chicago is the winner, incredible yes. winner. Also, yes. our beloved The Hours, the year we were radicalized. Yes. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The yes. Pianist, and yes. Gangs of New York. So, if you're talking about an additional five, the I think the big contenders, I, as I'm looking at it off of the bat, are probably going to be Talk to Her because it got the Best Director nomination for Pedro Almodovar and one Best Original Screenplay. I think if it was just the Best Director nomination, I could have been like, well, it could be a Thomas Vinterberg situation where you know he's a lone director. But because it won Original Screenplay, I think Talk to Her would have made the top five. I'm going to really disagree with you on that because part of the reason it's all wrapped up in Pedro and it was all wrapped up in that movie not getting submitted by Spain. Um, So uh, for uh, then for for, foreign language film. And so they pushed really hard to get pedro nominated somewhere for this movie that they probably weren't going to recognize elsewhere i think that movie's a masterpiece it's one of his best movies if not his best movie but don't you think um, that narrative would have also then just translated it to i really don't of... because it was just about yeah. him and it wasn't about the movie and that's truly one of his strangest movies i i, I just don't think that would have ever mm. gotten that far all right so let's say that there were nine best picture nominees this year to go with like <laughs> What would have been the four then for you? Uh, if we were doing nine? Yeah, the See, way these is... we do nowadays, where like it's, you know, between five and nine, but it's usually nine. See, I love I love Or between five and ten. ten. Okay, let's do ten. So okay. what are your five? What are your other five? Uh the next one <clears throat> I would guess uh is probably about Schmidt. Um this is when Oscar was starting to get on the Alexander Payne bandwagon. Uh, there were multiple nominations for this movie. Did it win a Best Picture at the Globe? Did it win Best Drama? No. Um, I believe The Hours won Best Drama, although now... 
Yeah, The Hours won Best Drama. Oh, it was okay. nominated. And it was also nominated, I'm pretty sure, for Director. It was at the Globes. My pushback to this is it wasn't even nominated for Best Screenplay at the Oscars. Oh, it wasn't? No. Mm, I think Talk to I, I put Talk to Her ahead of, ahead of About Schmidt. I think maybe the one I put ahead of the both of them is Adaptation. I have Adaptation on mine as well. I think Adaptation makes it. I also think that My Big Fat Greek Wedding makes it. My Big Fat Greek Wedding would be a contender for my 10th because the thing yes. is the Oscars respect money. They absolutely yes. respect money. And they, yes. they've they done things like Four Weddings and a Funeral getting nominated for, I think, just Screenplay and Best Picture. Right. Um, so it makes sense. And I would probably put that in my 10 above like Road to Perdition, which was a movie that like, Everybody right. respected the craft of it, and no one liked the movie itself at the time. Except for me, but yes, I didn't have a, I didn't <laughs> have a vote. <laughs> well, yes, you you are noted um, Academy member. You are a member at large right. uh, of the branch, so you voted for Road to Perdition. That should have um, been, by the way, Thomas Newman's Oscar. I know that was a very, very good original score year. One of the best, actually, original score lineups of my lifetime. It's Elliot Goldenthal wins for Frida. John Williams for Catch Me If You Can, where even if you bitch about like John Williams getting nominated for sighing heavily, um, it's a really great John Williams score. Um, and it's an El- atypical John Williams score, which is what yeah. I find exciting about that score. Elmer Bernstein was sort of, the again, the early favorite for Far From Heaven because it was this, you know, a genre pastiche of a score. He Philip Glass won. for The Hours, who I fucking adore, and I listen to that right. score all the time. But I do feel like, for me... The absolute best one. It's Thomas Newman's best score. It's Road to Perdition. It's so, so, so good. Uh, I would give it to Elmer Bernstein. But speaking of original score, perhaps this might surprise you. I think Frida would have been a Best Picture nominee. It doesn't surprise me. Frida had... You talk about momentum. Frida came on so strong at the end of that Oscar campaign, where for a while it was just assumed that it was just going to be Salma Hayek. And even the narrative was... Salma Hayek is like pounding the pavement to get this nomination and all of a sudden nominations happen and it gets six nominations and like wins what two right wins makeup and score and but it's also nominated in costume design and song right burn it blue uh Alfred uh, Molina was absolutely sixth place in supporting actor he was probably yeah that was probably the case yeah so, no, I don't think that's crazy at all. And then what is, so my, so I've got, mine are Talk to Her, Adaptation, Big Fat Greek Wedding. I do agree with you on Frida. Maybe my fifth is about Schmidt then. Maybe that, maybe that's where that happens. What other contenders? None of the animated, my, like Spirited Away is not going to do it. would be Catch Me If You Can. Yes. I think that's right. I think if you look at the top 10 years, um, you know, a Spielberg movie that is well-reviewed like that, like um, like Bridge of Spies gets nominated. War Horse gets nominated. Like something like Catch Me If You Can, you know, probably, you know, makes that cut for sure. I think that's right. So if you don't have Talk to Her, what is yours instead of Talk to Her? My five would be Adaptation, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, about Schmidt, Frida, and Catch Me If You Can. Right. So about Schmidt and, and Talk to Her are two differences. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
and now we fight it out on the battlefield <laughs> of whatever. Yeah, yeah. We fought more over this than we fought over anything on our screen drafts. You know what would have... No, we were very... Well, we were uncommonly in sync. Like, when we were done recording that, we texted each other, and our lists were pretty much the same. It was kind of amazing. Um, go listen to us in screen drafts, though. It's a, it's a whole... Listen, guys. Lots it of was, moments. It was a time. It was yeah. a moment for unity. There was tears. I bled. There were actual um, tears. <laughs> it's true. God, I'm such a sap, but it's true. Um, I almost cried talking about the hours. Well, Great yeah, go go and listen and see what movie actually got me to cry. Um, the other thing, as I look at this 2002 Oscar ballot, what would have actually, and it's, you know, there's a reason why it wasn't because the, the divide between when it was a foreign language contender and when it was an actual contender uh, makes it impossible to sort of slot this in. But, like, Zhang Yimou's hero is such a Best Picture nominee waiting to happen it was such a crossover hit when it did finally get released Mm -hmm. that you can't help but think if fucking weinstein had just released it when he had it like who knows how well it could have done it's so it's one of those movies that is in the year we're talking about it is a foreign language nominee and then i believe a nominee for um let me look this up and see how many nominations it received. But it was a nominee in the next year. I'm positive. Was for it? For other categories. Hold on. But yeah, it took a long time. Wasn't it released in like the summer? No, I guess it wasn't um, nominated. It wasn't but released Zhang in the Yimou United States until 2004. That's the thing. Oh, it sat on the how? shelf for a... F- yes, that's the, that's the outrage of it. Is it did not get released in American theaters until the summer of 2004. And... Like, yeah, fully wild. Um, and that's why everybody was so pissed because they were just like, why can we not, you know, see this movie? Uh, yeah, did not ever get any other Oscar nominations, unfortunately, because it's uh, it's so good. Uh, anyway, that's a great Oscar year, 2002. It really, really is. And I don't say that just because um, this Oscar year is why I'm like this. Yeah, basically. Yeah, this is why I'm like this. It's because of you. Even like Gangs of New York, which is a bad movie. Like I was so wrapped up in even the Gangs of New York of it because like yeah. it was another Scorsese movie that was delayed a year. Yeah. Um, which like that's been part of his career. Yep. That was also Age of Innocence too. This one actually did better at the Oscars than Age of Innocence, which is bananas to me because this is one of his worst movies. And Age of Innocence is one of his best I and still like, think the Daniel Day-Lewis performance in that movie makes it worth watching, though. I wasn't into Daniel Day-Lewis in the movie at the time. I do need to rewatch this. Maybe I'll be kinder to it. But, like, yeah, what a bummer. Do you think Bowling for Columbine would have had a shot? No, right? That's a no. No, That's just because a documentary. The, especially documentary, the rules have changed and the process for nomination has changed so much. Because, like... Um, was it Fahrenheit 9-11 that they submitted it for Best Picture, which meant that they couldn't submit it for documentary feature? Oh, that's interesting. It makes sense the, that they the would have submitted have that for so Best Picture. The so much that it's really hard to like keep yeah. it locked in my brain. But I do think that there was some type of right. eligibility thing there. And then I think Fahrenheit 9-11 was ultimately ineligible anyway because they aired 
they aired it on like PBS or something like the night before the election something oh right right because it was necessary for the American public to uh, to you know have that information before they voted that's always Michael Moore's thing I have to speak to the American public before this election they have right, to know because uh, the only person who can sway our minds is Michael Moore <laughs> Jesus. Right. I have this note. Maybe you can help me explain this. I normally I see my notes and I remember exactly why I wrote them down. I have this note that just says Maud checks herself in the mirror, and now I can't remember what that was in the movie. <laughs> Probably just a great acting beat by uh, Jennifer Ely. I did take uh, Oh, that was right. That notes. was when they uh they were, you know, she goes to retrieve the manuscripts from her room and then she like goes back and she like uh, checks herself in the mirror to make sure she's like all like I don't know it, it all felt very uh, uh, I don't know cliched or something like that I did love that as I mentioned the French lieutenant uh, woman ensemble that uh, that Jennifer Ely's character wears at the train station the sweaters the turtlenecks yeah that's all that's one of my similar notes was Gwyneth Paltrow in a British dialect saying the word bisexual. <laughs> That's true. Aaron Eckhart saying microfish. That <laughs> that was what maybe my favorite joke in the thing is when she first mentions to him that uh, uh, Christabel was uh, had a lesbian relationship, and he goes like, "Oh, I have no, I got nothing against lesbians," and she's just like, "Yes, well, they probably didn't have videotape back in those days, so uh, your your interest would be uh, muted or something like that." It was just like good burn. That was a pretty good burn, Patrice. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed that. The only other note I would say about focus features in this year and this Oscar year is the pianist was probably second place for best picture sure yes i agree after the director win the best actor win it did yes not win adapted screen it won adapted screenplay that's right yes ronald harwood yep it sure did yeah it, that was another one like frida really came on strong at the end of that year which is like it, it's interesting that like chicago still won but like miramax for as much as they were the ones who took the momentum away from Far From Heaven, almost got the momentum sort of nipped by them, uh, by Focus, by the end of that movie. It's really interesting how Focus sort of surged to the lead at the beginning, Miramax took it back for most of it, and then Focus almost makes it uh, at the end. I would not have been happier with a pianist win over Chicago, so I'm happy... It's so funny that we end up who do, we're ending up arguing on behalf of like Roman Polanski versus Harvey Weinstein, and I'm just like, God damn Yikes. it, God damn well, it! Well, I, I mean, and then sometimes. there's the hours, which is Scott Rudin and Harvey Weinstein, as we mentioned on screen drafts. Truly, how did something so wonderful come from I mean, a pairing? They're not the so authorial cursed. voice on that movie. They're not the, no, the authorial voice on not. that movie. Isn't even Stephen Daldry. It's the actresses, and it's Michael Cunningham. <laughs> I do sometimes I do sometimes feel like we do that as a convenient sort of, uh, you know, I don't like this movie because of that terrible person. I like this movie because of the other things. And they're well, the reason I mean, why. In fairness, for you're the not production wrong. of the hours, Scott Rudin had more of a hand than Harvey Weinstein did. He definitely did. But it's like it's not like it's not to the degree that like you can see Harvey Weinstein in Gangs of New York, or at least you can see the struggle between Scorsese and Harvey Weinstein in Gangs of New York. You can see Harvey Weinstein's thumbprints on 
Chicago more. And again, I love Chicago and I'm not going to stop loving Chicago because of Harvey Weinstein. He cannot do that to me. So I'm not going to stop loving the hours just because two of the most notoriously terrible people in Hollywood both produced it. So uh, yeah. Yes. Anyway. Anyway, should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, let's. Okay. Listen, uh, the explain to our listeners new and old, what the IMDb game is. Sure. So every week we end our episodes with something we call the IMDb game. What's IMDb? Well, it's a website on the internet where you look up actors. You should know this by now. Uh, We challenge each other with this game each week uh, with an actor or actress and try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television shows or perhaps the movies where they give a voiceover only we mentioned that up front uh, after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue if that is not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints that's the IMDb game Joseph would you like to uh, I should have done that in first. a British accent I should have done that in my best Gwyneth <laughs> British accent but I didn't you should have done it uh, like Jeremy Northam in the sex scene you should have had some tasteful side but Oh, no one wants to see my tasteful side, but don't worry. Don't worry about that. Um, well, why... luckily, either way, this is, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's this is an aural medium. Right. Yes, we disagree with... You can't hear with... tasteful side, but, or one hopes di- you cannot. We disagree with our friends at Las Culturistas. Uh, the, we, we are adamant that podcasting remain an audio medium only. So, yes. Um, anyway, yeah, why don't I guess first? Okay, cool. So we talked about our love for Jennifer Ely. So I went back to uh, the thing that launched her, the Pride and Prejudice BBC production. Notedly, her uh, co-star was Colin Firth. Have we never done Colin Firth? uh, It appears we have not. Crazy. Okay. There's no television, no voiceover work. All right, so no PNP. Um, Colin Firth is not into PNP, I will say. So uh, uh, he's into the party, not the play. <laughs> no, he's into the play, but not the party. He will. Uh, oh, he will okay. be in a play. He, he doesn't need to be into the party. He already brings the party. Okay, he brings the party, but he will star in a play for sure. Um, I mean, King's Speech for sure, obviously. King's Speech. I'm gonna put a pin in a single man because. It was an Oscar nomination, but it was small. I mean, obviously, at least one of the Bridget Joneses will be in there. I'm going to first guess Bridget Jones's Diary. Correct. Two for two so far. Dos for dos. Um, How about some Kingsman the Secret Service? God damn it, you got it. Ha ha! Okay. So now we've got some sequel considerations, whether Edge of Reason shows up or whether Kingsman 2 shows up. Sometimes they do sequels. You're not Sometimes. even considering Bridget Jones's baby. How dare you? I'm not. I'm really not. I Nor am I. Uh, well, is he in the Kingsman prequel? Probably not then, right? Um, but that hasn't been released yet. Anyway. No, that's just a that's been a threat on the movie calendar for a long <laughs> right. time. They truly, it truly has been just a wasn't it pushed threat. from before pandemic? Yeah, I think it had my, already been pushed once, right? My demon right. theory about if cats had been pushed because of the visual effects <laughs> is actually true for uh, the King's Man. All right, um, 
one that I really don't want to guess, but it's not leaving my brain, so I might just have to like purge it. Um, he is, I believe, I'm trying to think of which one he is. I think he's Taylor in Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. But anyway, I'm going to guess Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Incorrect, not Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Yeah, all right. All right, Firthy. Oh, is it Shakespeare in Love? It is not Shakespeare in Love. Damn it. All right, so uh, your year is 2009. 2009. Is that... No, Bridget Jones' Edge of Reason is like 2004. Oh, Single Man. It's a single it man. It is a single man. God damn it, I had it right there at the beginning. Shit. I was going easier on you after going hard for a few weeks, so I'm glad you at least didn't get a perfect score. Yeah, well, shut up. Okay, um... <laughs> For you, I have... So, I went down the Gwyneth uh, uh, rabbit hole. The year after Possession, she was in, uh, obviously, Sylvia, which we talked about in our 2003 miniseries. She wasn't in anything in our Naomi miniseries, was he? That would have been amazing if, like, Gwyneth shows up in every miniseries we do. Um, Get ready for the next Gwyneth, because we'll have a... We'll have a this set yeah. for us retro quiz because it'll be a, for she's, sixth movie yeah sixth timer coming up next for Gwyneth okay uh, but her next movie after Possession was of course the rapturously received uh, View from the Top uh, <laughs> where she plays a uh, flight attendant uh, emphasis in a, on the wrong syllable in a in a kicky orange uh, orange outfit uh, alright so but one of her co-stars in View from the Top is of course the great Candace Bergen so oh. I'm gonna have you guess Candace Bergen. One of who one of hers is television, which is Murphy Brown. Correct. Um, Miss Congeniality. Correct. As the okay, great Kathy Morningside in uh, Miss Congeniality. I do think Candace Bergen's gonna be one of those people that their Oscar nomination is not there. Um. I'm talking about her actual Oscar nomination for starting over, not the Oscar nomination uh, that she should have had and then should have won for uh, Let Them All Talk. Um, So, Candice Bergen. (laughs) What if... That that would be a great joke to put in something, is to have a very pretentious person look at her name and say, oh, Candice Bergen, yes. (laughs) Candice Bergen. Candice Bergen. Can I just read you the first line of her IMDb uh, bio? Please, for the love of God, do it. One cool, eternally classy lady, Candice Bergen was elegantly poised for trendy ice princess stardom when she first arrived on the 60s screen, but she gradually reshaped that debutante image in the 70s, both on and off camera. Tell me more. What bitchy queen wrote that. <laughs> it starts out saying she's a cool, eternally classy lady. But you then know what? You know what's really bitchy ice. towards uh, Candace Bergen is um, the "You must remember this miniseries on the Manson murders." You listen to that one, I imagine, right? Yeah. There's That's so like many little things about best. like Candace, like quotes from Candace Bergen that like really make her sound like a real dum-dum like it's really kind of <laughs> like a jerk yeah yeah well yeah i hate true crime stuff i hate all of it every single bit of it the you must remember this charles manson like miniseries is 
the pinnacle. It's so good. Of the medium. It's it so is good. Incredible. I do like true crime, so like I'm not opposed to it as you are, but like yeah, it's real good. Uh, true crime media is is the bane of our current modern culture. I remember I was living in Park Slope when that came out, and I would I got on this really good kick of like going out and walking every morning because I was working from home, so I was able to like go walk along Central or uh, Prospect Park West uh, every morning, and that was like the soundtrack to like every time I think about that miniseries, and like every time kind of that I think <laughs> about the Manson murders now, I just think about these like wonderful, gorgeous, idyllic walks around Park Slope. It's really fun. <laughs> Oh, okay, boy. okay, okay. Back to Candice. Um, Back to Candice. We're never going to let that one go now. <laughs> uh, book Club. No, but should have. Like, Boo. Book Club. Boo good. to this. I, I disagree. I disagree. Yeah. I should get the point for this, and you should knock something else off. What's the song that Mary Steenburgen and Craig T. Nelson dance to at the end of Book Club? Uh, Meatloaf. It's they Meatloaf, do... right? Yeah. It's Bad Out of Hell, or is it uh, I Would Do Anything for Love? I think it's I Would Do Anything for Love. Yeah. That's so good. Yes, it is. And it's so good. That sequence yeah. is so good. Um, anyway. Uh, okay. Carnal Knowledge. No. And I would God have guessed damn. that as well. So, okay. So, those are two strikes on you. You've gotten two. You are missing movies from 2002 and 2009. Oh, okay. So, the year we are talking about. Yes. Um, hmm. It would have been a comedy. She really pretty much is only in comedies now. Where she's playing a variation on her Miss Congeniality character. O2. Is it a rom-com? It is. Okay. Rom-coms from O2. Is it a... I assume it's a popular rom-com because it's in her known for. It, it um, was a it was a it was a hit for sure. It was a hit. Oh, um, 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 um it's Sweet Home Alabama. It's Sweet Home Alabama. She plays the mayor and also um uh is she she's someone's mom in that, right? Or is she not? She's I think uh, she's the love interest. She's mom. Patrick Dempsey's mother, right? Yeah. She's like and she's like too good for uh uh she thinks her son is too good for uh uh, Alabama girl. Trashy Alabama uh, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Reese Witherspoon's never been trashy a day in her life. Um, okay, what was my other year? Oh, 09. Oh, 09. So... By the way, I wasn't silently disagreeing with you about Reese Witherspoon never being trashy. I was just trying to think of a line from her uh, elevator video with Cara Delevingne and Zoe Deschanel, and I couldn't think of anything that was good <laughs> enough, so I just stayed silent. Obviously, I don't think Reese Witherspoon is trashy. I love her. Oh, she's in the Sex in the City movie. It's the Sex in the City movie. Well, the Sex in the City movie was 2008. Um, Damn so it. no. Okay. I assume it's another rom-com. It is. Also a hit because it's on her own for. Eh, I don't know if I would call it a hit. Now I want to see is how it, much movie this made. Does that mean it didn't make money or that it's bad? Uh, hold please. It's definitely at least one of those two. I want to look up and see if it's the other one. That means it's oh, bad. No, it, it, it made, you know, enough money. Okay. Okay. 
Ishian. It made fifty-eight million domestic off of a thirty million dollar budget. It had a worldwide of one hundred and fifteen. So yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, people saw it. Unfortunately. Oh, so it's really bad. Yeah, and it has it, it's really bad with a lot of talent that I love. So it like brings me no joy to say mm. that it's really bad. It's so, from from it's a, a director lot. we have covered uh, on this head Oscar buzz before. Okay, a director that did rom coms that we've talked about before with Candace Bergen with a lot of other people you love that is bad and was only like a modest hit. Right. It was much more known for being bad than it was for being a hit. Okay. I'm wondering if I maybe haven't seen this one because nothing's really ringing a bell. If you haven't seen it, you've at least heard of it. But you maybe haven't seen it. Oh, I'm sure I have. Because if it's people you love, then it's probably people I love. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm trying to narrow it down by it being bad. Are, are like you were on you the love... right track when you said that it was going to be rom-coms where she plays variations on her miscongeniality character that's much more applicable to sweet home alabama but like she still plays kind of like she's not the villain in this movie like she is in those other two but like it's still the kind of like authority figure who throws a wrench into the plot in this movie. is this uh, the people you love in this movie, is it an actress? It is at least one actress. Multiple actresses? Yes. Are they like awards or awards adjacent actresses? Yes. Is it definitely maybe? No. Interesting. Definitely maybe is a better movie than this for sure. Okay. Definitely um, maybe is what? Vice, Isla Fisher, and... Elizabeth Banks. I suppose Banks. <laughs> I was only thinking awards for uh, Rachel Vice. Rachel Vice, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one that came to mind, and I haven't seen it. And I'm guaranteeing you that this is a movie I haven't seen because I can't think of one at so this time. So it's one Oscar-winning actress paired with one Oscar-nominated actress. And they had both been nominated or won at that point? Well, one of them, the one who won hadn't won yet, but she had been nominated, like, had just been nominated. Like, this is, people joked that this was her Norbit. Oh. See, I was almost going to say Monster-in-Law, but egregiously, uh, uh, erroneously, offensively, Jennifer Lopez is not a nominee yet. Um, no. So this is a 2009 wait, movie. Wait, wait, it's a Norbit. You yeah. said Norbit, so like it came out during an Oscar season. Yeah. It's Bride Wars. It's Bride Wars. Yes. I haven't seen Bride Wars. You shouldn't, but like Kate Hudson and Hathaway, love them both. Candy Bergen is the woman who books the who double books the venues and then tells them that they have to decide between themselves. But it's also co-written by uh, June Diane Raphael and Casey Wilson, who I also love. And it really bums me out that it's uh, as bad as it is because um, the talent involved, by God, the talent. It's directed by Gary Winnick, who directed uh, Tadpole, who uh, yes. we talked yes. about. Um, I, will, <laughs> I will always, always, always go back to that terrible <laughs> clip from the trailer where one of the pranks that Anne Hathaway pulls on Kate 
Hudson is that she uh, schemes to have her hair dyed blue at her uh, salon appointment and kate hudson just screams it's blue in the trailer which i will always at least remember i won't say fondly but uh (laughs) yeah yeah bride wars is on candace bergen's known for somehow bummer everybody please go search for let them all talk on imdb right now and if you haven't seen it go watch let them all talk candace bergen deserves an oscar for that movie um Anyway, that's our episode, guys. We are two episodes into our five-episode miniseries on Focus Features. We'll be back yeah. next week with Ang Lee's Lust Caution. Fucking love that movie. Can't wait to talk about it. So much um, lust, so much caution. <laughs> this this song goes out to all the lust in the audience tonight. <laughs> and also... And also all the, the caution. caution. <laughs> um, if you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our listeners where they can find more of you. Yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. You can also find me on Letterboxd, where I will, where I will hopefully very soon start watching things that were not nominated for an Oscar for 2020. So <laughs> that'll be a fun new change for my Letterboxd. Uh, we'll see how it goes. And I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, including Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please write us a note about how much you love us and we'll get Gwyneth Paltrow to recite it. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. And also the lesson, and also the culture. my guide.